Chapter thirty one of the Life and Adventures of Michael Armstrong, the Factory Boy. This is a LibriVox recording. Chapter thirty one A Friendly Consultation, A Dangerous Embassy, Lady Clarissa Receives Some Disagreeable Intelligence, An Awkward Contest, Unpleasant Visions, A Fitting Termination to the Confidential Union Between Master and Man. Such was the state of affairs in the bedroom of Sir Matthew Dowling when Dr. Crockley entered it were all the words which mrs gabberly then uttered in explanation of what she had done why she had done it and how her doings had answered to be written down here my waning pages would hardly suffice to contain them dr crockley nodded winked approved and applauded a great deal joked a little and finally felt the patient's pulse observing at the same time that it was necessary at any rate to bring him round sufficiently to get a little talk on business out of him before he popped off for good and all "'Very right and proper, if you can manage it, doctor,' sagaciously observed Mrs. Gabberly. "'But you may depend upon it that—' And here she whispered something that it was especially intended Martha should be neither the better nor the worse for. The doctor nodded and winked and nodded again. And then, turning to the poor girl, who was not only the one who alone in that presence cared anything for the prostrate millocrat, but the one of all created beings who would alone have felt his death to be a cause of mourning— Dr. Crockley turned to her and with very little of even the external decency of sympathy said, "'Do you think you can manage to get some mustard, my dear, out of the clutches of the bailiffs? Because that is what we want here.' Without answering, Martha moved towards the door, and Michael, not conceiving that the physician's words were but a brutal jest, and fancying that Martha might really have to petition those who now held authority in the household for the article wanted, stepped after her to request that he might execute the commission in her place.' "'You shall come down with me, Michael,' she replied, "'and I doubt not you will be able to procure what we want without difficulty. "'But alas, Michael, it will avail nothing. "'I am sure by their whispering that they both know it will avail nothing. "'Nevertheless, it shall be tried. "'But is it not dreadful that of all his numerous family "'there should be only one to receive his dying breath? "'Oh, God!' she added, with clasped hands and streaming eyes. "'If it be a judgment, let it atone for all that has been wrong.' for surely it is a heavy one. On reaching the hall, the pitying Michael, who in the sufferings of his friend forgot all the cruelty of his enemy, insisted upon going alone in the thronged and noisy offices, while she sat down to wait for his return. He did his errand promptly, and was by her side again in a minute or two. But he found that she had left the chair on which he had placed her, and was now pacing up and down the hall in violent agitation. "'I am overpowered. I am borne down by all this horror.' this deep and bitter grief she exclaimed and there is not a single human being near me but your ill-used self michael from whom i am likely to find any real kindness the conduct of all with whom i have had intercourse since my poor father's distresses came upon him has been such as to make me wish rather to shun than seek them at this awful moment yet i want someone to tell me how i ought to act i know that fearful man parsons who is greatly in his confidence had business of importance to settle with him for again and again my father has said to me, since the execution has been in the house, that let what would happen, he must find time to speak to him. Ought I not, then, to send to him in this extremity? Would to heaven I were fitter to advise you, my dear Miss Martha, replied Michael, with equal respect and tenderness. Certainly, if such were your father's words, it is very right to remember them. Shall I go to the factory and summon Mr. Parsons hither? Oh, it is hateful to me, replied poor Martha 
to call such a being to his deathbed. But it may be that the interests of others are at stake, and when I recall my father's earnestness as he spoke of the necessity of seeing him, I tremble at the idea of disobeying him. Go then, Michael, hasten to the factory, and tell this man that his master is very ill, but that if he recovers his senses and his speech it is probable he may wish to speak to him. Michael lost no time in obeying her, and on reaching the mills found the superintendent as usual at his post. At the first glance he did not recognize the messenger, for the appearance of the young man was greatly changed by the style of equipment which, under the advice of Mr. Bell, had been provided for him. No sooner did Michael speak, however, than the man started as if he had been shot. "'Sir Matthew, send you!' he exclaimed. "'What mountbank tricks are you got at now, you young villain? What, did you think that this fine toggery could bamboozle me? Has it really bamboozled him?' Have you, faith and troth, contrived to pass yourself off upon your dearly beloved benefactor as a gentleman of fashion and fortune, who has come to make him a visit of condolence upon his misfortunes? A capital fellow, ain't you? Or perhaps, my nice young grandee, you fancy his grinders are drawn, and that he can't or won't, maybe, have anything to do, now that he has fallen into trouble with putting such an elegant young gentleman to inconvenience? Is that it? But it is just possible that other people may be more at leisure— "'Who knows?' "'Never mind me now, Mr. Parsons,' replied Michael, utterly indifferent at that moment, to anything and everything that his old enemy might attempt for the purpose of annoying him. "'Never think of me or my affairs at such a time as this. "'You have given me no opportunity to speak, "'or you would have understood that it was not Sir Matthew who sent me here, but his daughter. "'Sir Matthew was too ill when I left the house to know anything about it. "'But Miss Martha thinks that, if he recovers his speech and senses, he may wish to speak to you.' "'Like enough,' replied the superintendent with a sneer. "'Sir Matthew's troubles have nowise changed his nature. "'The young lady is quite right, "'but I shouldn't have thought that he'd have told her anything about it either. "'No, but what she might have proved the job, too, "'if she had got any spirit in her. "'But she is but a poor, puling sort of a creature, "'much as she was when she used to cost at you, "'my beautiful master runaway apprentice. "'However, never mind that now, "'and as you say, my pretty master,' "'There's a time for all things. "'You may just step in here while I change my coat. "'It beant the first time as you have entered this pleasant building, Master Mike, is it?' "'Michael was going to obey him, "'but at the moment he was about to pass the threshold, "'something in the eye of the superintendent made him pause. "'He recollected full well the ready lock of that once-hated door, "'and it struck him as by no means impossible "'that his old acquaintance might turn it upon him "'if he put it in his power to do so.' Fears for his own personal safety he certainly had none, being quite aware that he was no longer in any danger of being kidnapped as heretofore. But the idea of Martha being left, at this her utmost need, in want of any little service he could afford, was quite enough to make him cautious, and with something of an involuntary smile he stepped back, saying, "'There is no occasion for me to wait for you, Mr. Parsons. I have delivered my message, and you may obey it or not, as you please. At any rate, you cannot want me to show you the way to Dowling Lodge.' and so saying he turned round and walked out of the yard. "'Pestilent young viper!' muttered the superintendent between his closed teeth. "'That I should live to see him strut off before me in that fashion. But I'll have a try if I can't plague him yet. Fool that I was when I had him snug by myself on Ridgetop Moor, not to give him one farewell thrashing with the horsewhip. If I had put out a joint or two it would have been no great matter.' and then I should have been spared the D-blank sight of him now, marching off, 
blank, hang him, like a peacock before me. As to changing my coat, that's fudge. People don't trouble themselves to change their coats when they are going to pay their compliments to an apoplectic bankrupt. Having fairly got beyond all the bolts and bars immediately within the jurisdiction of Mr. Parsons, Michael slackened his pace, being rather inclined to have the society of his former tyrant than not. "'Sir Matthew appears to be in a very dangerous state, Mr. Parsons,' said he, as soon as the sulky superintendent came up to him. "'Perhaps your right honourable greatness has been studying medicine since I had the pleasure of taking that little drive with you into Derbyshire.' "'I have studied many things since that time, Mr. Parsons,' replied Michael, laughing, "'and one is the nature and use of locks.' The tone in which this was answered was so brutal that the young man, rather from disgust than anger, walked on faster than his foe could follow him, and, reaching the house some minutes before him, made his way again without ceremony, for it was no time for it, into the apartment of Sir Matthew. A considerable change had taken place in the condition of the patient since he left it. The cataplasms had so far succeeded as to restore animation and consciousness. Sir Matthew, still surrounded by Martha, Mrs. Gabberly, and the doctor, was gazing upon them with widely opened eyes, which, though wild and wandering in expression, were evidently not devoid of speculation. Michael had entered very gently, but not without being heard by the sick man, for he turned his eyes full upon him as he approached. The sight of him, however, no longer seemed to produce any emotion, for after looking quietly at him for a moment, Sir Matthew turned his gaze upon Mrs. Gabberly, who, from being in the act of leaning over him, brought herself particularly within his sight. "'Is Parsons come?' said Martha in a whisper. "'He must be in the hall by this time,' replied Michael. "'Shall I tell him to come up?' "'My dear father has not yet spoken,' she said. "'But perhaps he may understand me. "'Parsons is here, papa,' she added, taking her father's hand and leaning over him. "'Should you like to see him?' "'He is in London, my dear,' replied the knight very distinctly. "'Thank God!' exclaimed Martha, tenderly kissing him. "'Thank God! His speech is not in the least affected.' "'Rather wandering, though,' said Dr. Crockley, winking his eye at Mrs. Gabberly. "'I should say, bleed him again, if you want to get anything out of him,' observed Mrs. Gabberly, looking sagaciously at the doctor. "'Perhaps I may in an hour or two, he replied, applying his finger to the patient's pulse. Sir Matthew fixed his eyes upon him and laughed a horrid, rattling, ghastly sort of laugh that seemed to come from his throat. "'You haven't quite done with me yet, have you, Crockley?' said he. "'Done with you, my dear friend. God forbid,' replied the physician, rather startled at the apparently healthy state of his patient's intellect, and affectionately smoothing his pillows and settling the bedclothes about him. "'Would you like to see Parsons, dear papa?' said Martha gently, and again bending over him. "'Oh, yes,' he replied eagerly. "'I'll see Parsons now, directly. "'I should be very sorry not to see Parsons. "'I may live or I may die, you know, "'but I must see Parsons.' "'Martha immediately left the room, "'intending to explain to the superintendent "'before she brought him into it, "'the state in which her father lay, "'and the necessity of receiving any orders "'he might wish to give "'with as little disturbance to him as possible. "'On reaching the hall, however, "'she saw him not.' and was on the point of returning upstairs to inquire of Michael where he had left him, when she caught the sound of his voice from Sir Matthew's study. On entering this room she perceived not only Mr. Parsons, but Lady Clarissa, who, standing before the commode in which, as she happened to know, her husband was accustomed to keep papers of importance, as well as money, appeared to have been very assiduously examining its contents. 
for every recess had evidently been visited, and as one of her hands was tightly clutched over a pocket-book, it seemed that her researches had not been wholly in vain, and that she had not privately obtained possession of his keys for nothing. "'I was sent for, my lady,' said Parsons, apparently replying to some question of her ladyship's, which, to judge by her angry frown, and the vexed expression of her countenance, had not been a civil one. "'My father wishes to see Mr. Parsons directly,' said Martha. "'And by your ladyship's leave I must take that green pocket-book with me,' said Parsons. "'What pocket-book, you rude fellow?' replied Clarissa indignantly. "'That one as your ladyship now holds in your left hand,' replied the confidential superintendent. "'I wonder, sirrah, that you do not ask me to give you the rings off my fingers,' cried the angry mistress of the mansion. "'Go to your master, fellow, if he has sent for you, and I shall go too.' so you need not trouble yourself about the pocket-book. And with these words she pushed past both Martha and Mr. Parsons, preceding them to the sick man's chamber. By the time they entered it his eyes were again closed, but he appeared to breathe without difficulty, though rather more audibly than usual, and Martha fancied that he was asleep. "'Hush!' said she. "'Do not disturb him. He is sleeping.' Dr. Crockley and Mrs. Gabberly had withdrawn to a window and were evidently in consultation. But whether on the symptoms of apoplexy or bankruptcy might be doubtful. Michael, however, was standing close beside the bed, and in answer to Martha's observation shook his head, saying, No, not asleep. Then he'll manage to hear what I've got to say to him, said Parsons advancing, and throwing a glance of spiteful vengeance at Lady Clarissa, because it is just what he wants to know. At the sound of Parsons' voice, Sir Matthew opened his eyes and made an effort to raise himself, but this was beyond his power, and it was only by being lifted with as little effort as possible on his own part, as if he were already dead, that he was placed in the attitude he seemed to desire, and in which he was supported by pillows and by the arms of poor Martha, who had placed herself on the bolster behind him. It was a frightful and awful expression which then took possession of his sunken features, nevertheless a hateful sort of smile made part of it. "'Parsons, that's you, isn't it?' "'That's Parsons that stands there,' he said, directing his misty eyes full upon the superintendent. "'Yes, Sir Matthew, tis me,' replied the man. "'Have you done my bidding, Parsons?' demanded the knight, with a sort of gasping which seemed to threaten that his breath was about to leave him. "'Yes, Sir Matthew, it's all regularly made out,' replied Parsons. "'Nobody can mistake now about times or dates in any way.' "'And isn't that the Honourable Lady Clarissa?' said the sick man, directing his eyes towards her. "'Yes, Sir Matthew,' replied Parsons, with something like a titter. "'Then, then, then,' panted the dying man, "'let her ladyship know what was the last business that I gave you instructions about. "'A very fitting business for an honourable gentleman to attend to "'when his affairs are in confusion, and he not in an over-good state of health, "'replied the confidential servant, turning himself round "'so as exactly to face her ladyship. "'No less a matter than restoring three good thousand pounds a year, "'forever, towards clearing scores with his creditors. "'Now, three thousand pounds a year was exactly the sum "'for the settlement of which upon herself, "'a daughter of the noble house of Highlandlock "'had condescended to assume the name of Dowling, "'and the mention of the often meditated sum roused her ladyship's attention "'so effectually that her face involuntarily protruded itself beyond her body, "'till her nose very nearly reached that of the individual who was addressing her. "'Go on,' said Sir Matthew, positively chuckling, "'though his chin dropped on his chest as he spoke. "'Well, then, 
resumed Parsons, leering aside at Dr. Crockley, who with Mrs. Gabberly had drawn near to listen to this very interesting disclosure. Well then, justice is justice, and Sir Matthew, let him die when he will, won't have it upon his conscience that he defrauded his creditors to make a settlement upon any lady in the land, gentle or simple. Because you see he has left proof, plain and clear, that he had committed more than one act of bankruptcy before he made the settlement upon her ladyship, and for that good and excellent reason her ladyship will have no right to one single penny that he leaves behind him. And that is a comfort to an honest man like me, who likes to see justice done to high and low. Villain! screamed Lady Clarissa. It is false. No, 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 issued from the pillows in a voice that shook with ghastly laughter. True, all true, and now she may go to Scotland. Just ask her to give you your green pocket-book, Sir Matthew, before she goes, said Parsons, grinning. I saw her ladyship take it out of your bureau, and if she will be pleased to open her hand, I think it will tumble out of it. With a look of inexpressible rage, Lady Clarissa turned away from him and made towards the door. "'Stop her, Crockley!' cried Sir Matthew feebly, adding with panting difficulty, "'And you shall have it!' Dr. Crockley had a great respect for the peerage, and would, beyond all question, have preferred snatching a pocket-book from nine hundred and ninety-nine untitled ladies in succession, rather than from one Lady Clarissa. But he felt that this was no moment for ceremony, and obeying what was very likely to be the last behest of his patron, he rolled his fat person after her with extraordinary muscular exertion, and grasping the lady's robe with one hand, seized on her rigidly clenched fist with the other, in such a sort that, according to the prophecy of Mr. Parsons, the green pocket-book dropped out of it. Unfortunately, however, the attitude in which this feat was performed was one which could not be retained by the ill-balanced person of the doctor, after the supporting form of the lady on whom he had thrown himself had escaped from his grasp, and struggling with as much anxious care as Caesar to fall well, i.e. upon the pocket-book, he measured his length upon the ground. Parsons, though certainly not hoping for so lucky an accident, had, with the same sort of instinct which brings the crow beside a sickly sheep, followed closely the retreating steps of her ladyship, and adroitly jerking the coveted pocket-book with his foot so that it should escape the being buried under the stumbling physician, prepared himself to dip and catch it. But the success of the manoeuvre was less perfect than its ingenuity deserved. For ere his tall, rigid person had bent itself sufficiently for him to reach the ground, Mrs. Gabberly, who had become one of the group at the same instant with Dr. Crockley, was in possession of it, and ere the prostrate Crockley or the stooping Parsons could raise their eyes, the prize had dropped into the deepest recesses of a prodigious pocket, which reached nearly to the bottom of her little petticoat. It is probable that both inquiry and search might have been instituted in consequence of this, had not the condition of the patient at that moment rendered it impossible. Sir Matthew's ghastly eyes had fixed themselves on Lady Clarissa during the foregoing scene, but as if, though they had still the power of discerning objects, they had lost that of moving after them, he appeared to lose sight of her as she approached the door, and the heavy orbs seemed seeking for something on which to rest themselves without any change of position. It chanced that Michael, who quite aware that the last moments of Sir Matthew were approaching, determined not to leave the premises till he had learned the wishes and intentions of Martha, was at the moment moving from the corner he had occupied near a window, not within sight of the bed, to a table exactly at the foot of it, on which was placed a flacon of cologne water, which poor Martha, almost exhausted by the painful attitude necessary to sustain the pillows, had made him a sign to get for her. 
This movement brought him within the range of Sir Matthew's eyes, and something in his aspect as he cautiously bent to take the bottle, or else the thick-coming fancies of a brain diseased, though not paralyzed, suddenly produced a terrible effect upon the dying man, and he uttered a cry so harsh and terrible as to constrain the attention even of the preoccupied group at the door. "'There's a dead body walking about the room,' he ejaculated in an unnatural and frightful accent. "'He has come for me, and I must go.' The shriek which followed these words was terrible. In a minute or two he spoke again, but almost in a whisper. "'One? No, it is not one. It is five hundred. Take them. Take them away from me, I tell you.' They are all dirty, beastly factory children. Their arms and legs are all broken and smashed and hanging by bits of skin. Take them away, I tell you, Crockley. Their horrid joints will drop upon me. They are dangling and loose, I tell you. And then again he shouted with so fearful a cry that even Parsons pressed his hands upon his ears to save them from the sound. Calm him, calm him, cried the trembling Martha. "'Can you not give him something that may still this dreadful agony, Dr. Crockley?' "'It is not a very easy symptom to master, Miss Martha,' replied the physician dryly. "'However, it is not likely that it will last long. "'All the life that's left is just about the heart and brain, "'which is always unlucky if there happens to be anything particular upon the mind.' "'Parsons!' cried the dying man, again raising his voice, "'but without looking towards the person he addressed. "'Parsons!' Are you not ashamed of yourself to turn the whole set of them out upon me at once in this way? You that have paid and bribed and tipped so often, rascal! Take them off me, I tell you. Do you mean that they shall stifle me? They will stifle me, they will, they will. I cannot breathe for them. Parsons, I tell you, they will stifle me. Papa, my dear, dear papa! cried Martha, bending forward till her cheek touched that of her father. Compose yourself. It is only that you are unwell and fancy things. There are no children here, papa, but your own Martha. Her tender caresses and her gentle voice together seemed to reach and quiet for a moment his wandering intellect. He made an effort to turn his head towards her, but that was impossible. And Michael, who had, upon his first frightful cry, removed himself to the head of the bed, where the eye of the wretched man could not reach, silently offered to take Martha's place, that she might station herself where it could. She quickly understood him, and in a moment stood where that dying eye could gaze upon her. His hand, with its glittering ring, still lay upon the bed. She took it in hers, and fondly chafed and kissed it. But it was stiff and cold as marble. "'Father, dearest father,' she said, "'Speak one word to me.' But it was too late. His lips never opened more. For some hours longer he continued to breathe, but on again feeling his pulse, Dr. Crockley declared that its faint pulsations must inevitably cease before night. "'I suppose your old servant Betty Parker is still in the house, Miss Martha,' said he. The poor girl bowed an affirmative, but had no power to speak. "'Well, then,' said the doctor, I should recommend that you should put her to sit here. It is no good for any of us to stay any longer, for it's all over just as much as if he was already in his coffin. You had better go away and see what you can pack up to get off with, Miss Martha. That's all that is left to be done, as far as I can see. Come, Mrs. Gabberly, he added. I have got a friendly word or two to say to you, 
so your boy shall mount my pony and I'll drive your donkey for you. And so saying, he took the little woman under his arm and trudged off, without waiting for her to inform him whether she approved his proposal or not. Mr. Parsons, giving one scowling look at the silent bed, followed them, and Martha and Michael were left together beside the dying man. Upon perceiving the totally unconscious state into which Sir Matthew had fallen, Michael had gently withdrawn himself from behind his pillows, and now stood, almost as silent and motionless as himself, beside the bed, respectfully waiting to receive from the desolate and weeping Martha some hint or instruction respecting his staying where he was, or leaving her. Never, when the poor dependent of her family, had the young heart of Michael been impressed with a feeling of respect so profound as he had at the moment felt for the unhappy girl. In truth, the feeling was so powerful as to interfere with his usefulness, for he shrank from appearing to put himself forward too presumptuously by giving her advice, or venturing in any degree to dictate what it might be best for her to do. But when, after remaining thus bashfully silent for a quarter of an hour, he perceived that she gave no other sign of life than by tears that flowed incessantly, and sighs that seemed to heave her breast almost to bursting. When he saw this, he began to think that some degree of seeming presumption on his part might be better and more profitable for her, whom he would really have died to serve, than the continuance of a degree of deference which must render him useless. Approaching, therefore, to the chair on which she had thrown herself, he ventured to say, "'Miss Martha, where can I find your old servant, Betty Parker?' I remember her very well. She used to be always in the nursery. If you would tell me where she is likely to be, I will go for her. Poor Martha, for a moment, ceased to weep and looked up at him. Michael Armstrong, she replied, I am not conscious of ever having injured any human being but yourself. And yet you are the only one who is near to support and help me at this dreadful hour. God bless you for your kindness, my good boy. Do not go away, Michael. That is, I mean... Do not leave the house till all is over. Indeed, I think you may be useful to me. Miss Martha, he returned, will you trust me to sit here while you yourself summon whomever you may wish to keep you company? I will keep out of sight in case. And here he stopped. His eyes will never open more, Michael, she replied, while the tears again burst forth, and thank God their last look at me was gentle. But I almost fear to leave the room, Michael. I would not that he should breathe his last, and I not by him. But Michael, unskillful as he was, felt that the scene was too awful a one for the poor girl to be left alone in, and he therefore persisted to declare with the authority which such subduing sorrow gives to all around who will take the trouble to exercise it, that he would watch by the bedside of her father while she sought the old woman mentioned by Dr. Crockley. Reluctantly and unresistingly she consented, and, giving a look at the bed that seemed to wring her very heart, she quitted the room, leaving Michael Armstrong alone with the motionless mass of still living clay before which he had so often trembled. How strangely eventful had been the interval between those well-remembered days and the one actually present with him! How extraordinary the change in the circumstances of both parties! It was not triumph, but it was thankfulness which Michael felt as the sense of this came fully upon him during these moments of profound stillness. And the result of all the moving thoughts that crowded upon his mind was an earnest prayer to heaven that he might never be placed in any circumstances likely to harden his heart and make him the cause of suffering to others, a fearful and a dreadful crime which he felt, as he gazed with trembling awe on the sunken features of the living corpse before him, must in the sight of God be held as one of the most daring rebellion to his heavenly will of which man is capable. 
solemn and solitary as was Michael's position in the chamber of Sir Matthew, the interval of Martha's absence did not seem long. She returned accompanied by the old servant who had been nursery attendant, though never raised to the dignity of nurse from the birth of the eldest child of the family, and who was the only one remaining of all the numerous household who retained the slightest feeling of attachment to any of them. To her, habit stood in the place of preference, and she might perhaps be said to love all the dowling children, from the eldest to the youngest. A sentiment which led her to conceive, as in duty bound, a most hearty detestation of their stepmother. It was, therefore, with something very like pleasure that she obeyed a summons so solemn and so peremptory as to justify her, even in the judgment of Mrs. Saunderson, for laying aside the ironing-box, which she had been plying incessantly for two whole days upon the frills and furbelows of Lady Clarissa, in order to obey it. On perceiving the condition in which her master lay, Betty Parker strongly advised poor Martha to retire, urging the uselessness of her remaining to look upon what was so grievous, when a baby might see at half a glance that the poor gentleman could not tell friend from foe. But Betty Parker knew little of the intensity of Martha's pertinacious love for her unworthy parent, if she fancied that her very reasonable remonstrance would produce any effect. Martha attempted not even to answer it, but placing herself in a chair close beside the bed, remained nearly as motionless as the faintly breathing figure that lay upon it. Poor Michael knew not too well what he ought to do next. He felt that he was useless there. He knew that he should be stared at as a very incomprehensible intruder if he descended to the offices. Yet he remembered that his benefactress had bid him not to go, and he could not have felt himself more strongly bound to remain had the crime of high treason been involved in his departure. Yet there was something in the stupid, puzzled look with which Betty Parker regarded him that vexed his spirit. He was conscious that he had no business in that room, and therefore at such a moment he ought not to be there. After a few moments of reflection he approached Martha, and making so profound a reverence as to convince Betty that let him be who he would he was a very well-behaved young gentleman, he said, I will now, Miss Martha, go to the inn for an hour or two, and then return to take your orders. A look of gratitude was all her reply, and Michael departed. It was three o'clock in the afternoon when he entered the little inn where the postboy who had driven him from Fairley in the morning was still waiting his orders. "'I cannot tell you yet, my lad, when I shall be ready to return,' he replied in answer to the boy's questionings. "'It's all one to me, master,' said the driver. "'In course I shall be paid accordingly.' "'Certainly you will,' returned Michael, and he was then left to eat his solitary dinner with what appetite he might." For three long, melancholy hours he employed himself in pacing backwards and forwards on the high road before the little inn, and was beginning to think that time enough had elapsed to justify his returning to inquire how matters were going on at Dowling Lodge, when the sound of a carriage approaching as it seemed from the park gates caused him to stop abruptly to listen and to look. The equipage that drew near was a handsome travelling carriage, though its appearance was considerably disfigured by the prodigious quantity of luggage which was fastened by ropes and chains to every part of it. The imperial only formed the foundation for a pyramid of trunks and bandboxes which were piled upon it. The servant's seat behind was loaded to its very utmost capacity with more trunks and bandboxes, while chained below it was a massive coffer that looked very like a plate chest, having suspended round its sides bundles, baskets, and bags innumerable. Nor was the interior by any means reserved for live lumber alone, 
for although the rigid figures of Lady Clarissa Dowling and her waiting woman Sanderson were visible in the midst, it appeared to be crammed with every imaginable species of property which such a conveyance could transport. Michael watched the overloaded vehicle roll by with great satisfaction. Whatever happens, thought he, Miss Martha must be better without her. Relieved by knowing that he should not again run the risk of encountering her delectable ladyship, Michael immediately took his way to the magnificent mansion she had forsaken, and, perceiving that the hall doors stood wide open, preferred passing through them to encountering again the motley throng that had taken possession of the offices. But instead of finding this portion of the house as quiet and forsaken as he had left it, he was startled by hearing, as he mounted the steps of the stately portico, a multitude of voices in violent altercation. At first he felt disposed to turn away and seek another entrance, but the vehemence of the sounds he heard excited his curiosity, and he went on. Instead of one, half a dozen strangers might have entered without running any risk of having their right there challenged. So great was the confusion that reigned. And Michael might have passed up the great stairs and into the chamber which it was his purpose to visit without any difficulty but he was prevented from taking immediate advantage of this by hearing words which excited new fears for the unfortunate Martha. And ere he had listened many minutes, he became aware that a new creditor had reached the lodge after he left it, who had come armed with proper authority to arrest the knight, dead or alive. Nor did the discussion of this event cause all the uproar, for the agents of the parties who had previously sent in the execution were threatening with all sorts of punishment, Several of the servants, whom they accused of having been bribed to assist Lady Clarissa in the removal of many valuables which she had no right to take. It was not this part of the tumult, however, that interested him, and having obtained but too clearly the information that Sir Matthew was arrested, he once more sought for the unhappy Martha in the dismal chamber where he had left her. And there he found her. But with such frightful adjuncts to her natural grief that the state of quiet decent sorrow in which he had left her, seemed a condition positively enviable compared to that in which she found her now. Sir Matthew had breathed his last, and the corpse was already arranged with decency upon its stately bed. But on each side of it stood an officer, whose duty it was to violate by their presence the solemn sanctity of that dismal chamber, and to prevent the bodies being carried to the grave, till the claims of their employer were satisfied. In front of her father's corpse, with her troubled eyes no longer bathed in the healing dew of natural sorrow, turning from it to its rude guardians, and back again to all that was left of the sinful being she had so fondly, blindly loved, stood the wretched daughter, so sad a spectacle of woe, that it was evident the men themselves turned their hard eyes studiously away, because they felt a pang of pity as they looked upon her. "'Come with me, Miss Martha,' cried Michael, unceremoniously seizing her arm. You must not, you cannot remain here. You can do no good, Miss Martha. All is over now. You must come away, you must indeed. The only answer that poor Martha gave was forcibly shaking off the hand that held her, and then pointing first to her father's body, and afterwards to the two unseemingly attendants who stood beside it. It is no use, young man, to strive with her, said Betty, who was still occupied in completing some of her lugubrious operations about the bed. I know her better than you do. She will stay here watching him till she is as dead as he is rather than go away and leave his body to be tended by such as those. For a moment Michael really felt all the enervating effects of despair and stood perfectly incapable of even imagining any means of help for the agony which it wrung his heart to witness. 
But as the old woman pursued her ghastly occupation, she went muttering on, expatiating on the sinful and unchristian outrage that was thus committed. "'And what will the rogue get by it?' she said. "'Does he mean to show the corpse for a farthing ahead to his factory blackguards? "'Isn't he as big a fool as he is knave?' "'No, mistress, no, by no means,' said the friendly defender of Mr. Joseph Parsons, "'for it was at his suit that the body of Sir Matthew had been arrested.' You may call the superintendent rogue, or knave, or what you will of that kind, and I don't suppose that there's many as would contradict you. But as to his being a fool, especially as to the doing what he has done here, that he is not. Twas his only chance. And how much do you think he'll make of it? demanded old Betty with a sneer. Why, just the four hundred and sixty-seven pounds as is due to him, replied the man. To all this poor Martha appeared not to pay the slightest attention and in truth neither understood nor heard a word of it. But Michael did, and with sudden animation stepped up to the man who had spoken and whispered in his ear, "'Perhaps we may be able to settle this business without any further difficulty. Step out of the room with me, will you, for a moment? Your companion can do all that is necessary without you.' "'Neither I nor my employer are people to make difficulties,' replied the man, "'and I am quite ready to hear you, young master, if you have got anything to say upon the subject.' They accordingly retired together, and in a wondrously short space of time, the uninitiated Michael was made to understand all the circumstances of the case, the most important of which was that if, as Mr. Parsons hoped and expected, Miss Martha could find ready money enough quietly to pay his little private account with the late Sir Matthew, the arrest would be immediately withdrawn and the body left for her to dispose of it at her pleasure. And the sum, said Michael, is how much? Four hundred and sixty-seven pounds, replied the man, with some little matter, not exceeding four or five pounds more, for cost. Withdraw the arrest, said Michael, and the money shall be instantly forthcoming. Let us see the money forthcoming, replied the fellow, grinning, and the arrest shall be instantly withdrawn. Here is the money, sir, said Michael, taking out the pocket-book containing Martha's generous donation, and drawing from it notes to the amount demanded. "'Then the business will be soon settled, young gentleman. "'May I take the liberty to ask your name?' "'My name is of no consequence whatever, sir,' replied Michael. "'But lose no time in giving me the discharge. "'Only first enter that chamber with me once again, "'withdraw your companion from his frightful watch, "'and tell the poor young lady that it is over.' "'The man readily obeyed, and the morning, "'but thankful Martha was once more left with her old servant "'to watch beside her father's corpse.' End of chapter 31